And welcome to the second half of our AEW All Out 2023 double bill of Meltzer 5 Star matches. By which I mean it's another part of the Let Me Tell You Something's Meltzer 5 Star project where myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorca Mullen and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross discuss every match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated 5 stars or higher. We have a debutante in this episode but we also have a figure that is so synonymous with Dave Meltzer that he actually usually goes beyond five stars in his ratings. But this is a mere five stars for him. Gouge your eyes out. Why are we even bothering? All that kind of stuff. <laughs> just blitzed through him. Jesus. <laughs> we, just, we just don't have time here, Simon. We don't have time. But, Simon, what are we talking about today? We're talking about a match between Kenny Omega and Kanosuke Takeshita. So it's appropriate, really, that this is part of the double bill, because in many ways this is following the same basic narrative of the previous match between Brian Danielson and Ricky Starks that we talked about last week, where it's a generational conflict, where an up-and-comer is trying to claim a top spot from a wizened veteran, a future star of AEW trying to claim their moments. Uh, sometimes these succeed in wrestling, sometimes they fail. What's curious about this one is that it's a successful match for the young dog. This is a big match where Kanosuke Takeshita does pick up the biggest win, arguably, of his whole career in this match against Kenny Omega. And the methods that he does so is something we can talk about more as it goes on. But the key point of this discussion is, does this do Takeshita the favours or not? Going into this match as well, I think one of the things that's curious about it from my experience, I noticed it more, I, I ended up watching it a second time because there was a, a long gap between when we intended to record it and when we actually did record it for this match. And I didn't take notes the first time. If I'd have taken notes the first time, I would have probably felt more comfortable talking about it without it. But I did re-watch it just before we recorded. The first time I watched it, I felt like this was, the big story going into All Out was this was their first event major event after cm punk had been removed from the company <laughs> and it was also in the market that had been pretty much aw's bread and butter for the past two years with cm punk in the promotion in chicago now yeah omega is a part of the whole situation that happened the previous year at all out that led to this and you do get a smattering of that. And I feel like throughout this whole match, the crowd never quite gets engaged to the level that you expect from the best of Kenny Omega matches. Like, the crowd losing their minds towards the end of his match with Will Ospreay a few months earlier. It doesn't really happen there. And also, there's, like, smatterings of punk-related chants, it seems, at a couple of moments. Did you notice that yourself? Like, the second time I watched it, it was like, oh, it's not as prominent as I remembered it being. But the crowd did feel like it took a lot more to get them engaged and i wonder if partly that's also because as i say is Takeshta getting over as part of this story or is it more the omega callus show and this didn't necessarily feel as pivotal a chapter for the two of them necessarily i don't know 
Well, the thing is, what is Konosuke Takeshka as a character? You, you talk about, obviously, the first half of that double bill. And before Ricky Starks entered this um, micro-feud with Brian Danielson, serving as a late replacement for CM Punk, as we alluded to last week. Ricky Starks' character was like pretty well-defined, obviously former member of Team Taz, his NWA work which carried him into uh, AEW itself. Takesta's character in AEW is, no, until recently, nice man who does the wrestling. That was it. Now he's got a dark jacket, now he's got Don Callis, but... What is he beyond the dark jacket and what is he beyond Don Callis? I don't really know. I think what the intention of it is, is that, you know how we said throughout New Japan that there seem to be dark mirror versions of the top baby faces in the promotion in Jay White. So much of Jay White seems to be this dark mirror version of Hiroshi Tanahashi. And Will Ospreay in many ways felt like a dark mirror version of Kazuchika Okada. And I wonder if the reason that you don't feel that way necessarily with Takeshita is that I think the intention is to have him be the Dark Mirror version of Kenny Omega. But it feels like it's a it's a role that doesn't fit the Takeshita that we know of. Like, the only reason I feel like anyone is booing Takeshita is nothing to do with his in-ring work and only to do with the fact that he's got Don Callis with him. Yeah. Now, for years and years and years in wrestling, that was all you needed anyway. Because in the territories, it was usually, especially like the WWF, it was the managers that were the regulars within the promotion, and they just cycled through various wrestlers, and the reason that you booed them was because they were managed by that manager. They wreak havoc, they challenge the top guy, ultimately the top guy vanquishes him, they move on, manager brings in the next person. Yeah, it's more. it was more who you associated with than who you were yourself. But nowadays, the notion of having a manager that's over is almost seen as... Or a manager that is the main part of the story almost feels like a failing within wrestling and that it should always be about who is in the ring. Mm. Even with Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman still, I think, except for the period where he was transitioning from Brock Lesnar to Roman Reigns, has always been the supporting character spokesperson, always been at the service of the other wrestler. Whereas Takeshita in this is at the service of Don Callis' storyline. Yeah, because sometimes it's ended up with Paul Heyman managing some weird people just to be feuding with his former charges still. It never quite fit, like him. Well, that was just for the CM. Yeah, the whole Ryback thing is what I'm yeah, on about. But that was fine because that was more a mid-card storyline to indulge Punk and Heyman. They, they used very easily sacrificable Curtis Axel and damaged goods Ryback that it wasn't a problem for them. I mean, it did lead to the dream team of Rybacksaw that we talk about to this day. Oh, yeah. But that's neither here nor there, really. Because the, the key part of the story, the intention of this match, I feel, was was to continue the Omega to Don Callis storyline, but the hopes that this was the big win for Takeshita, there's a signal that two, three years down the road, he will be the guy in the role that Kenny Omega maybe is right now, which is the incredible physical specimen that goes out there and and has these matches that defy what you think human bodies are capable of and wrestle to a caliber of in-ring performance and excitement and crowd engagements that just has your jaws on the floor and that it will be Takeshita who's having all the six and a quarter star, five and three quarter star 
even seven-star matches for Dave Meltzer once Kenny Omega does hang up the boots or retreats into a more part-time role. Maybe. The story of the whole match is that Takeshita has now surpassed Kenny Omega physically. It's very Okada Tanahashi in that regard. Yes, but I'm not seeing yet, partly because of what you've highlighted, he's not the focal point of this story. And one area where you struggle in any story where it's between a manager and a wrestler is what's really the payoff? Because it's not like you can pin the manager clean in the ring and it mean anything. Do end up going into a little bit of a cul-de-sac with these sort of scenarios. I mean, inevitably, will Callis get one wing angel? Yeah, okay, maybe he will. But then what, what, what does that mean? It's also interesting when you consider that for both of these generational conflicts, it's the veteran that's the babyface and the up-and-comer that's the heel. And we're having that mirrored a third time over now with the Sammy Guevara-Chris Jericho feud that's taking place. (laughs) And they're actually coming together and Don Callis is interacting within that as well. So they've been merging two of those three storylines that have been happening. I mean, what pattern I've noticed, though, with these generational feuds is that maybe it needs to be that at least in some regards for it to have the right ending, which is what it should be for 90% of the situations, which the younger generation triumphing eventually, is that they should be doing that from the position of a babyface in most instances. It doesn't have to always be like that. You can argue that Randy Orton, when he was doing his Legend Killer gimmick, that worked, so him going over Mick Foley. But then it's not like a like-for-like generational thing, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. He wasn't trying to be what Mick Foley was. He was just trying to make a name off of older legends. Okada Tanahashi was about being the ace of the company. Misawa Saruta was about being the ace of the company. In both those situations, whilst Okada didn't start off as the babyface, he eventually became a babyface through his actions. Or, or at least as close as Okada comes to being a babyface while still remaining a bit of a dick. <laughs> but he becomes somewhat humbled, slightly, by Tanahashi in all the ways that needs to get to the point. And now that we see Okada starting to take the Tanahashi role with the next generation of wrestlers, he is seeming to be positioned as heelish in his behaviours. Like grumpy old man Saruta was to Misawa and the rest of the Super Generation Army. Yeah, whereas conversely, with Kenny and Takeshita, you've got Kenny as the wronged party. You've got Jericho against Sammy as the wronged party. Danielson against Starks as initially the noble defender of a pensioner, who then became the wronged party. But you can trace that back to even other ones. I mean, the biggest mistake I think that they made in WCW beyond just hiring Vince Russo for that whole generational conflict was that they made the old guard the baby faces and the youngsters the heels do you mean when they hired russo the second time yes the second time brought him back is there any any hiring of vince russo unless it's wwf in 1998 was 1997 <laughs> was a mistake when you had child locks on him it was fine but if you go all the way back to the original well not the original but maybe the most famous generational feud still to this day Bruno Sammartino against Larry Zbysko. And as much as we loved it, and it was the idea of Larry Zbysko being, feeling wronged, Larry Zbysko never reached a height greater than he did in that feud. Larry Zbysko 
is not to the next generation of wrestling what Bruno Sammartino was to the previous generation of wrestling. He had decent enough runs in the territory. He was one of the, I think he was the last AWA world champion when yeah. they went out of business. But that in itself tells you the whole story, really, as to the level of stardom that he truly maintained afterwards. But you get where I'm coming from. I do. Larry Zabisco never matched Samatino. Now, is the worry with this that whilst they may hope that it goes that way, Takeshita may always struggle to get out of Kenny Omega's shadow because that's how it's being presented and partly because the big win is not something that's greeted with excitement or, you know, when when the three count happens, there's a palpable shock in the crowd because it, not just that it was a three count, but it was essentially as clean as a whistle three count yeah it's not like a week before in the six man where he got the uh, shock roll up and scarpered so technically this is this in terms of attendance it's nowhere near like the biggest win over kenny omega but because this is a singles match and it's clean as a whistle it's uh, got the exclamation point attached to it. it's got the stank attached to it in theory the, the physical torch is being passed but not yet Maybe in the future we'll connect to uh, to Kestra as a character in AEW, but we just haven't yet. The thing is, we've we've spoke about Don Callis a lot already in this episode. He is Don Callis's weapon, <laughs> but in terms of like the storyline, the storyline is Callis versus Omega. Takeshita is just basically the sword being wielded. He's not the knight. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do think Takeshita does have a story going on for him, which was. He was the lovable loser almost in many ways. That he was having all these great matches, but he was losing all of them. And that then Callis used him, manipulated him, in order to turn him into what he needed, which was the weapon to slay Omega with. Mm. They're both using each other as a weapon. And I think, again, the key symbol of the match, and has been the key symbol of all of this feud between Omega and Callis, is that screwdriver. That that is what Callis used to hit Omega with to turn on him in the Moxley match. Did he hand he handed Omega a screwdriver when he turned heel, didn't he? When he beat Moxley for the title. So the screwdriver has that lineage all the way back there. I think so, yes. But the key of the match is that Takeshita doesn't need the screwdriver to it. it I mean, Osprey used the screwdriver. It wasn't what won him the match in the end, but it shifted the momentum of that match. Yeah. When he's up for the one-winged angel, and this time Paul Turner catches a screwdriver, gets rid of it, and then Takeshita beats him. It's like the Tim Man finding out he had a heart all along. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And ultimately, what that shows is that he's never needed Don Callis as represented by the screwdriver, except maybe that he said something to him that got him to believe in himself or something. Well, it's alluded to in the Dynamite before, where Don Callis shows like Takeshita, like, basically Kenny's medical records. Like, you want to make sure he lands on this side of his neck, because that's the bit that was repaired. Here's his hernia surgery. So when you hit him with a blue thunder bomb, hit him where he lands on this bit of his body. Well, that's the other interesting thing about this match, is how it is structured in several ways. The key one being that really there's no extended period of time where Kenny Omega gets all of his shit in really well. Like, he is... Ahead, in theory, in the opening exchanges with the headlocks and all that. But then Takeshita surprises him with a backdrop suplex that's got him bumping like he's Kenta Kabashi in 1993. <laughs> but, again, the weird structure of that is, like, that's the big that's the big move of the match, really. That is as close as you come to the Osprey 
Tiger Driver of the previous match. Although, that's again, that's not what wins it for him. But Omega's back in control almost immediately after. Now, they play off the fact that that's already started to affect him because when he does the You Cannot Escape on the outside, he's wobbly on his feet afterwards. But then he hits the moonsault when you think, oh, well, that's a sign that he's in trouble. And then in the time that Takeshita has to recover, he doesn't get it. And there's a couple of moments actually in this match where it felt like the time it was taking Omega to execute some of these moves was leaving Takeshita in one of those sort of gormless, why are you standing there just waiting for something? Like, yeah. he's standing there for a kind of an awkward period of time before he receives the Terminator dive from Omega. And similarly, when Omega does the missile drop kick to the back of his head, he's similarly just sort of standing there for a bit too long. It's hard to get the right timing to be in place so that you're right in position for when he's hit that it's maximum efficiency without it looking awkward. It's not people very lightly patting each other on the back whilst everyone's looking up in the air to make sure that person settled themselves on the top rope before diving onto everyone. Yeah. It, it, yeah, you're not, it's not the most egregious example by any stretch. But it's right. just noticeable enough when it's something like this where the idea is these are the two best physical people, they can go faster than everyone, they make your jaw drop, then you miss these sort of things because they're so fast and so good. And there are some moments of just fantastic physical dexterity from both of them. Kenny Omega's missile dropkick to the leg. I love that. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it, that they're presenting Kenny Omega, and they have done ever since he's come back, as not quite ever being back to his full self. But he'll have a coming out party at some point. Yeah. It's just, it's not getting him the same results, necessarily. Another great example of athleticism is... The dive that Takeshita does onto the chair that Callis is holding over Kenny Omega, which is like a further nod to, oh, we know his like hernia surgery, so let's like make sure we like hurt, hurt his midsection, like a, a showcase of his athleticism. He really shows showcases like with that dive how good an athlete Takeshita is, and the thing I keep finding myself coming back to when I'm talking about him in in this episode especially, is what's there after that? Like, you you talked about the crowd being somewhat partisan, somewhat miffed to factors outside of this match. Is it just that, again, the story has been told of, like, Callis and Takesha sort of using each other. Fine. Has it landed? Has it really connected from the... Takeshita side of things I don't think it has I think that the end goal with Takeshita will ultimately be that he does the Virgil turning you know standing up for himself against Dibiase or whatever that he turns against Callis turns babyface he's a natural babyface and continues on from there but I do agree that there's not as much crowd connection to Takeshita as a character as a personality and I think that will always be a problem when there is a language barrier because Takeshita can't cut a promo in the language that gets people interested. And it's notable when you promote non-English speaking wrestlers and I think we need to move more and more towards that as the world becomes more internationalised. Uh, the world of wrestling as well in particular. Because yeah. it feels like for the first time ever right now WWE have hit on how to present Shinsuke Nakamura and work with his with it, working within his language to make it means something that he says what he said to Seth Rollins is like oh he knows how to speak English but he's just gonna say it at the moments that cause the maximum amount of mental anguish to his opponents 
It's sort of like Kevin from The Office. Why say lot words when few words do trick? It's, that's the first time I'm sure that Shinsuke Nakamura has been compared to Kevin from The American Office. But it won't be the last! <laughs> I've just got an image of Shinsuke bringing in chili tomorrow for no reason into like WWE's changing room. Pouring it on Seth Rollins' back. Ah! <laughs> That's how he injures him. He just scolds him. Genius. <laughs> and then smacks him over the head with the pan. And Chili's a nightmare to get out. And Tomato's a nightmare to get out of clothing. And Seth does love his drip, so it's twofold. Yeah, especially Seth's clothing. <laughs> when Seth Rollins makes his entrance for the rematch he's got like chili color flavored cloak he's converted it into a new cl- costume now when we started let me tell you something as a core concept listeners one of the reasons we started it the way we did was to Simon avoid was desperate to come up with weird analogies involving kevin from the office partly true partly also because we didn't want to be a here's how we'd book it, here's what's going on this week, here's what we think creative should do. And I think the last minute and a half has shown you why specifically we chose not to go down that path. Guarantee though our version of wrestling would find an audience. Not a big audience. But, but an, an audience. audience. There's a pop for every lid. But are we going to lift the lid on the character of Takeshita and go further into it? You can. And like I said, Takeshita has that inherent likability that will carry him, I think, beyond this storyline. But I don't know that a main event talent has been created in this match. And I think that was the hope that they had. Yeah. Because you put someone over a main event talent, it's usually in the hopes of making something from them. Especially when the storyline is, this guy is essentially now surpassed this opponent he was better than him physically throughout the whole match he didn't even need to cheat in order to do it Mm. and that's what don Callis ultimately represents with the screwdriver that takeshita doesn't really need don Callis to win against kenny omega but it's going to take a while for him to make that realization and it'll probably come after the feud which will probably end with kenny omega winning against takeshita and getting the hit on don Callis. but again are we cheering Takeshita standing up for himself or are we cheering Don Callis getting knocked on his ass? That'll be the question coming out. Because it's like Ted DiBiase was still a top star a year after the feud with Virgil. Virgil was not the top star. Or you want to give another example. How many times did people turn on The Miz? Damien Sandow? Alex Ryder? Riley. Alex Ry- the fact you don't know his name is a perfect summation of the bloody point you're making. <laughs> Exactly. But who did remain over? The Miz. And again, these are fine for mid-card storylines, but I think the intention of this match was to say Takeshita is the new Omega at some point in the near future. And he just ain't. Not yet, anyway. And I think Takeshita's an amazing physical specimen. I think he will continue to have brilliant matches. But I think his ceiling within AEW might be like the ceiling that they see for guys like Ray Phoenix. I can't see Takeshita main eventing a pay-per-view two years down the line as a super over guy with the crowd like I can maybe with Ricky Starks. And that, weirdly, Ricky Starks is lost to Danielson in the earlier match on this show that we covered might mean more to Starks in the positive than this win for Takeshita means over Omega. Mm. Now, let's make this clear. This is a very well-wrestled match. There's loads of great spots. Takeshita's 
maybe one of the most talented in-ring performers working right now, and that's saying a lot, given how many talented in-ring performers there are, just in AEW. Is German suplex, and I know he's like, um, he's like Matoma, because Matoma did his dissertation on dribbling, and Takeshita did his on German suplexes, and it shows in both of their um, athletic endeavours. It's so perfect, his German suplexes. It's insane. So we're saying that two years down the line, we don't necessarily see Takeshita as a main event star fighting for the... I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And we've still got more time in this storyline. And who knows what else there might be for Takeshita. Maybe Takeshita's a quick learner for English and he'll be pulling out great promos in order yeah. to get us all drawn in. We don't know. But not yet is the key point of this, I would say. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're saying if this was all you were submitting for the get Takeshita over assignment, you wouldn't get a high grade. But there's still time left before the deadline. There's no... The, the deadline hasn't passed. Even coming out of this match with a clean as a whistle win, he's still the third most over character in the crowd, and that's by a fair distance. But what I want to ask you, Simon, is, in two years' time, if Takeshita's not been made into the star they want him to be, will Kenny Omega still be able to do that role that maybe they wanted for Takeshita? Takeshita doesn't match up. And Omega's still having these matches and we're still covering him in the five-star projects. I don't know. It's hard to measure because the story is he's he's slower than he was, but he's still having these awesome matches. And he's not doing stuff in the ring that's indicating he's lost a step like CM Punk has done or like Danielson has felt with his injuries. Obviously, Omega was accumulating injuries, yeah. but since coming back, he hasn't had any return, you know, follow-ups that cause follow-up problems like it had to punk like it did to danielson well that's the thing like if he can stay physically healthy will he be having awesome matches in 2026 in the main event i think his style will change and i think he's got the ability to do that and still deliver matches at a high level but but where i think the issue is is the older he gets, it will be more down to what his opponent can do in terms of matching the storytelling element of the wrestling match than it will be their technical brilliance alone. Now, this match, is it five stars in terms of, like, moves executed in the ring? Quite possibly. Is it five star in terms of story? No. And once one... Once you can't go into the technical box of tricks so much and you have to go into the storyline side of things more, it really will become a matter of who is he against. And there are people out there he could do this sort of match with, uh, a storyline-based match more with MJF, for example. Could it be Takeshita not on current trajectory, not what we've currently seen? But things might be very different in two years' time. This isn't the moment. And they wanted it to be the moment, but it's not. I don't know if they wanted it to be the moment, but I think they wanted it to be a pivotal moment. And maybe it will be in hindsight. It's hard to say. You can't tell because things become a significant event after the fact based on things that happen after that. You know, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. After, therefore, because of it. Most of the time, that's true. For example, Howard Dean failed to get the 2004 presidential nomination 
for the Democratic Party. And he was the most seemingly daring to be more vocally riled up, energetic, whilst the rest of the Democratic field that was won by John Kerry didn't. But he didn't win. And then he did a follow-up promo, I suppose, after he lost Iowa. And he went, yeah! (laughs) And then he continued to not win subsequent primaries. So the decision was made that the reason he didn't win the nomination was because he went, yeah! But that's a misrepresentation and a misremembering of history. Mm. But that's just what we do. We needed to make these one thing followed the other, so therefore it happened because of that. So if Takeshita does become a big star, which I'm not saying is not impossible, people will say it's because of this match is one of the reasons along the way. Mm. Stogos Steve Austin became the biggest star in wrestling because he lost to Bret Hart at WrestleMania 13. Well, fuck all people watched that WrestleMania in comparison to the ones that were watching the Attitude Era afterwards. Yeah. And the majority of them won't have gone back and watched that match when they were into wrestling in 98. Most of them won't have watched <laughs> I was going to say, not in, in 98, that's true. Now, because it's included in every like bloody list under the sun, yes, now it's been watched. <laughs> or the Austin 316 speech. They're saying that's what made him a star. Well, he didn't become a star until two years later. And let's not forget, he was in that position because of outside circumstances. That's my point. It's just like, Maybe Takeshita becomes a star, and then people will attribute it greatly, possibly, to this match because it's his first big clean as a whistle win. And that's the story they want to tell. But if he does become a star, I'm not convinced it will be because of this match, based on how we're talking about it in the contemporary. Yes. So it's weird. It's kind of good that we have this for the record, almost, if he does become the star. (laughs) And if he doesn't become the star, maybe you can use our discussion as a launching point for that side of the discussion. Yeah. We're, we're, we're pinning our colours to the mask that this this isn't the moment, but we're not closing the book on what we think Takeshita's potential is by any stretch of the imagination. We want, I want to make that abundantly clear. I think we already have several times, but I'm hammering home the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's... I, I don't know any more to say. I think you said it already. I, I disagree with you as far as the movesets being that of a five-star match. I don't even know if that's... It was sort of relatively run-of-the-mill, relatively short as well. It only goes about 20 minutes. They're not matching the Osprey match for huge moves. No, I just mean in like terms of like pure crisp execution, like like lit- literal textbook stuff, rather than how one move fed into the other, because it sort of didn't really. <laughs> it, it it was semi. Stevie, be- you're saying if Stevie Richards is doing the breakdown of these moves, it wouldn't be because something went wrong, or to it would be to highlight this is a textbook example of doing this move correct yes um but no in terms of how they're sewn together it, it's weird because they did that with that medical history angle on the dynamite before this match it's sort of like the baby face had been beaten down prior to the match and they sort of wrestled it that way but that doesn't really work in my eyes and as we've spoken the structure of the match was different to what it usually would beef because of what they were trying to get over with their intentions. And also just the oddness of Omega taking such a huge, dangerous bump and it barely being a factor five minutes into the match, let alone at the end of the match. Yeah, I mean, he's still hitting um, your favourite move, reverse Ranas, like later on in the match, like no trouble at all. And considering what that murder-death-kill move was going to be and how it was sold by the announcers at the time, doesn't quite correlate. <laughs> Noticeable as well that Takeshita hit a 
knee padless, not V-trigger, but a knee strike. And that's what won it for him. Does that become his finishing move going forward? I would assume so. Yeah. And once Excalibur realized, oh, I screwed up with what I called <laughs> with the knee down, with the knee pad down. Uh-huh. He got it right the second time. So I guess maybe that's another thing you'll be looking to get a crowd reaction is him sliding the knee pad down. Now we're coming towards the end of the match. Or at least what Takeshita think will be the end of the match. They haven't really fully set the table, but they're trying to get us to sit down to dinner with him. Well, you've got to do that. You've got to prep the table anyway, and that's what they're doing with this match. Yeah. I know. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying you don't prep the table, but maybe you prep the table and then call the guests to dinner. I'm not going to torture this analogy anymore. <laughs> well, now I'm just furious that the WWE never did like an in your house t- style commercial about hosting a pay per view night for everyone to come around and it being the Dudley Boys and Bob pushing Devon and saying, Devon. Prep the tables. tables. <laughs> Steve, I'm putting plates on it. Yeah. Doilies. <laughs> Camo Doily doilies. Camo doilies. <laughs> Put the glass on the doily. I can't see it. It's a camo doily. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> Terrible. This oh. is making the doilies somewhat redundant, Bubba. Shut up, Devon. <laughs> Does he change into Reverend Devon to do <laughs> to say Grace? Like? Yeah, Grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, we need to stop ourselves. We go on. We we know we've gone too far with these episodes when we get to these sort of things. So as far as personal ratings, I would probably go no higher than four. I think four is its ceiling for me in this. And to be fair, maybe Old Meltzer would have gone four, but because of what Omega's done, he has to rate Omega matches on a scale of seven. And so him giving it a five is like me giving it a four, I suppose. Or a three and a half. There's no great reset, is there? The genie is out no. of the bottle, isn't it? Yeah, it's not It's not five for me. It, it was a fine story. It's a slightly odd story that they told. I'd go about four. Four and a quarter, maybe. What you've just heard are two people from the UK talking about a wrestling <laughs> match set in America with a Canadian and a Japanese wrestler. But the key thing there is where we were coming from, and that'll be be what we're talking about in the next episode, assuming there are no five-star matches in the interim. Which, by the time you've received this episode, there's a decent chance there already is. But, what the hell, we're not soothsayers. Nothing of what we say is soothing. But, Simon, what are we speaking about in the next episode? We're talking about the experience of being a British fan. What What is a British fan? How, how do they differ to fans of other parts of the world in the sphere of wrestling? But not just the fans, the, the wrestling culture in general. Is there a UK wrestling culture? Yeah. Obviously there was at some point, but what does it mean now? Yes. Compared to what it meant then. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with other gifts that they've made of Shinsuke Nakamura in place of various characters of American remakes of popular British sitcoms. How can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm sending the Simon Cross free, free for the number of people working in the accounting department in the American office. My name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N for the A-N at the start of Angela, another member of the office's accounting department. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntyspod at gmail.com. LNTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. 
have a five-star time. Until the next time.